Uh, I am Matt Parmley. My name's Kyle Bird. We are the Kaiju Transmissions Podcast. We're going to be talking about the H-Man today. So, That's yeah. correct. Um, in 1957, Hideo Unagami uh, pitched the idea for the H-Man to Toho, and they accepted his idea. Unfortunately, he passed away later the same year. His story was then given to screenwriter Takeshi Kimura, and he basically turned that particular screenplay into the finished work, which would then be, of course, directed by Shiro Honda. Um, of course, this reunited Honda with Eiji Tsuburaya and many of the regular Toho actors. Um, one thing Honda did actually was he asked scientists at the University of Tokyo's biology department that the pseudoscience in the film, which you'll see a lot of, was actually believable. Um, although not his first science fiction screenplay for Toho, um, Takeshi Kimura, he actually started to play with tropes that would later be revisited. Most prominently, um, incompetent and skeptical police units. You know, people that don't believe anything when they're told it the first time and they keep dismissing it even though there's evidence for it. <coughs> um, this also is the first in the Toho um, Mutant Trilogy, uh, Mutant Trilo Trilo Trilogy films. Of course, we have, if I get my PowerPoint to work, maybe. Come no. on, man. It's trying to work. Here from the beginning. Resume slideshow. Do you have to play the slideshow? It was working early when I tested it, so you know. <laughs> it's also me, so it's not just technology. That's usually how that works. Um, Bird, why don't you go through the brief uh, synopsis <laughs> okay. real quick? Yeah. Um, so. While Matt is figuring out uh, life over here, um, uh, it should be uh, mentioned that this was a 1958 release, um, which is the same year as a little American movie called The Blob. Um, and uh, this came out in the States a year after that, in 1959, which made a lot of people um, consider this kind of a cheap knockoff of The, of the Blob. But it's actually anything but. Um, the movie was released in Japan before The Blob was released, uh, and the two were in development at the same time. Um, same goes for Italy's Keltiki, The Immortal Monster, um, co-directed by Mario Bava. That was in pre-production at the same time, so 58, 59 uh, was a big year for uh, Blob creatures, I guess. Um, so uh, I'll go through a synopsis. Right, well, we're going to try this, maybe. Can't really is this see what, what I'm doing. Or is this for real? Okay, I, no, we'll do it. I mean, it's the problem is I can't really see, <laughs> right? Beggars can't be choosers. Um, okay, so uh, anyone that hasn't seen it, I'll run down the the storyline real quick. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, this isn't your usual Toho movie. It's uh, definitely geared more towards an adult audience. Oh, uh, we can backtrack to about two minutes ago. There are the Japanese posters for the uh, Mutant Trilogy of Toho Films. Um, not an actual trilogy as far as story is concerned, but uh, three special effects uh, movies um, that were um, centered on people uh, who could transform into some sort of uh, creature um, or killer. Um, that includes The Human Vapor, also directed by Ishiro Honda, and Secret of Telegion, directed by Jun Fukuda. Um, 
Okay, and oh, and then that's a cool one. Go to the, the script there. Yep. Um, that is Ashiro Honda's shooting script. He often <laughs> liked to draw on his screenplays. Um, and uh, so anyway, um, so as I was saying, um, this movie is about gangsters and seedy nightclubs and the underbelly of Tokyo. Um, so it's, it's not as kid-friendly as you might expect from, uh, from this group of filmmakers. Um, not that it's particularly gory or anything like that, um, but a lot of themes that younger kids might not understand. Um, the movie begins with a gangster named Misaki and he, um, he disappears suddenly in the rain, and all that's left are his clothes. Right there. There you go. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, he's not seen running away naked. People don't know what happened to him. Um, the police respond by really bombarding his girlfriend, who's a nightclub singer, um, Chikako, played by Yumi Shirakawa. Uh, they bombard her with questions. Oh, there you go. Um, and uh, this is when you definitely start to see the incompetent kind of bullheaded police that would show up in a lot of Kimura screenplays. Um, and yeah, they are very skeptical that she has no idea about a lot of his gangster ties or anything like that. Um, now meanwhile, uh, Dr. Masada, played by Kenji Sahara, um, he's been following a case about some sailors who uh, watch their friends disintegrate on an abandoned uh, uh, fishing boat in the middle of the ocean. Um, and those sailors turned into the grotesque H-men, which are these horrifying blob creatures who disintegrate you and you are then reincarnated into one of them. Um, and Masada brings his theory to the police, who again are very skeptical, even when he uh, shows um, an experiment on a frog, that poor little guy there, um, who uh, is turned into an H-frog, and they still don't believe him, uh, because the police in Takeshi Kimura screenplays are morons. Um, anyway, he believes that these blob creatures are responsible for Misaki's uh, disappearance, and they're forced to believe uh, that theory when the H-Men raid the nightclub. And as you, uh, we'll have some slides here, uh, there is one of them. And then there is a person dissolving. Uh, and, oh, well, go to the next one. Yeah. Yep, and there it is crawling up a stripper's legs <laughs> and dissolving her. And then we get kind of a hokey effect here that was actually cut from the US version. Uh, we'll get back to that. but. Um, at this point, they are forced to believe this. Um, so several people are killed, and um, it's theorized that the H-Men, um, if there's any horror people in the audience, uh, similar to George Romero's zombies, they retain a little bit of their psyche or their memory, and that is why they are drawn back to Tokyo. Um, and they find that they have a weakness to fire and that they have been uh, kind of hiding out in the Tokyo sewer system. Uh, and of course, at that point, um, they evacuate the city and uh, they have to torch the sewer system to, to get rid of these guys. Um, and uh, messed up sewer system aside, uh, everyone uh, has a happy ending, uh, but we do have a looming voiceover that says, you know, if radiation testing continues, uh, the next 
uh, dominant species could be the H-man. Um, so uh, I've babbled enough. So I, I mean, uh, Matt, we can discuss our themes, or our, I'm sorry, our ideas and thoughts on the movie. Um, so you go first. This is probably third time you've watched it, probably? Yeah, I watched it um, again last week for this particular, for coming to the panel. And I think for me, um, there's a lot of solid story work. It's got that weird gangsters meet some sort of science fiction monster. Uh, the thing that, um, if there's a knock on it, I, I think not having any sort of humanization for the H-Men, it's theorized that Masada, when he disappears, that he could be one of them. We don't really know for sure. And also, they just sort of attack kind of whatever is in front of them. And I think they, they lose that sense of humanity, which depending on how you view the film, maybe that's your stick and you think, okay, that's, that's a cool thing. But for me, it could have been more somber because this is based so much on the Lucky Dragon number five incident. If there was a, a moment where the H-Man sort of regained their humanity and recognized the people they were attacking and then maybe turned away from it, specifically um, Chikako because she was with uh, Masako, which they, they were dating, they were together. I think that would be my big knock. Um, the characters are all kind of very one note. They all do a great job, but there's nobody that for me stands out, I would say. Um, the story's pretty well put together. It's a very brief watch. I do like a ton of the, the, the special effects, the people melting. I mean, those things are, are wonderful to watch. It's a lot of fun. Um, um, I don't disagree with any of that. You know, I mean, it's pretty standard 50s B-movie stuff. They have, you know, very kind of one-note characters. Um, for me, it's interesting to see, like we were talking about um, Kimura's ideas of the police. I mean, you see that kind of leak into, um, you know, his general distrust of government and authority. Um, you know, that leaks into a lot of other movies like, uh, you know, War of the Gargantuas and stuff that he would do later on. Um, but I, I think what makes it interesting for me is um, the H-Man is an obvious um, allegory for the Lucky Dragon incident, which we'll, we'll get into in a minute. Um, uh, and I think a lot of the scenes that are evoking that are very, um, they're very moody and atmospheric. I mean, the standout scene of the film is um, the, the scene on the boat mm -hmm. uh, that's told in flashback as they interview um, the survivor. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the atmosphere, the lighting, visually, I think it's one of Honda's, uh, most interesting looking movies. Um, and just the, the moody, uh, lighting and, um, how they use blacks and, you know, the scenes in the sewer, um, as far as atmosphere goes, it's up there with Matango, if we were gonna kind of bring up another... Uh, Toho uh, mutant sort of movie. Um. Yeah. So you talked about the lighting. Um, in the sewer, it's actually kind of, it, it's creepy. The, the H-Man kind of goes up the wall on the ceiling then drips down on the, the main villain and it's hard to even see kind of what's going on and then there's a great shot of him just basically melting into himself and I think that's, as you talked about lighting, like it's so so very dark and it's hard mm -hmm. to see and it's very somber and scary and I really appreciate that. Yeah, and yeah, we'll, we'll have more, on, more to say on the lighting in, in a few minutes. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I, when I, I, I first saw this when I was maybe like 11 and I just, you know, I wasn't too into it. It's like, you know, 
where's the monsters? Where's the destruction? You know, and I, when I revisited, uh, I think probably when I was a teenager, I kind of had a new respect for it because you know I knew what I knew what gangsters were, and you know I knew what like drug dealers were not not from personal experience or anything <laughs> um but yeah just the the subject matter and the themes that are in the movie were a lot more uh um you know understandable as you know as as i got older so we'll talk a, br a brief minute um about kind of the main cast of characters so here well, how many melted oh, yeah. how many melted exotic dancers out of five would, would you rate this? It's a solid. It's a solid three and a half out of five. I okay. don't think everything lands, um, but the stuff that does work works really, really well. I agree. I'm gonna bump it up to four, just personal taste. Um, anyway, you were saying. <laughs> so um, we have familiar faces. This is honestly, it's this is an all-star cast. You have Kenji Sahara as Dr. Masada. Um, Akihiko Hirahata, who is in the, the main, the lead inspector, uh, Tomigana. Uh, Makoto Sato, who is uh, Uchida. Um, Dr. Ma uh, Dr. Maki, who is uh, played by Kurenai Senda. And then um, Yoshio Tsuchiya, who is wonderful and everything, is one of the detectives. And then, of course, um, we also have Nakajima, who gets a, an appearance on the boat, which is a pretty cool scene. Everything on the boat, I think, is probably the best part of the movie for me. The boat flashback is almost like its own cool little short film. Yeah, it's, it's really, really wonderful. Um, also, Kinji Sahara and um, Yumi Shirokawa, they were actually married at this time. They, they later divorced, but they were married when they filmed this. And right. They were cast next to each other in a few movies. And here she is in one yep. of the behind-the-scenes shots. Um... So I, I think uh, special effects is the next logical place for this discussion to go. Um, and um, <clears throat> so Honda used his regular cinematographer, Hajime Koizumi. Um, and uh, this was the only time they worked with um, Suzuro Nishikawa, who was one of Toho's top lighting technicians. Um, and he was known for excelling at shooting you know, very uh, dark scenes, um, <clears throat> like the stuff on the boat, the stuff in the sewer. Um, Mr. Arikawa, who was uh, Tsuburaya's assistant at the time, uh, really wasn't too into that, but Tsuburaya liked the idea that, you know, the atmosphere and the mood of the movie could be elevated by the audience actually not being able to see um, what, what was happening all the time. Um, it, he felt like it increased the uh, atmosphere and the mystery um, the sewer sets, uh, I think, uh, if you're a fan of um, Akira Kurosawa's work, a uh, cool piece of trivia is those are uh, reused sets from uh, Drunken Angel, which was the first film um, Kurosawa worked with, Toshiro Mifune, um, and Ifukube. Ifukube, no, that was The Quiet oh, Duel. No, you're messing me up, man. Uh, okay. Don't, um, don't be me. Don't do that. <laughs> Uh, well, let's talk about um, the actual blobs themselves. Um, and Matt will uh, give us some slides here. Um, the actual blobs were created from a blue-green seaweed uh, concoction that was used for cosmetic uh, products. Um, and that gelatin was then put in uh, cellophane, and that would be crumpled and flattened into this kind of solid 
mass. Um, and uh, they used organic glass, which was uh, this amorphic glass-like plastic. Um, and those blobs were uh, coated in um, a certain type of fish medicine, and that gave it the kind of blue-green uh, glow color. Um, now, to get them going up and down the walls, um, that was used uh, with a partial rotating set. So um, uh, the set would kind of extend into a small room that could be rotated. Um, and that's how they would get it to crawl up and down the wall. Um, and for those, they would even build the walls upside down and then rotate it. Um, and uh, um, Subarai's assistant, uh, Arakawa, he got seasick after filming so many rotating blobs. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, when they're in the more, I guess, human form, um, they, the, if you watch the movie, you'll notice they have this kind of shimmer effect to them. Um, oh, there you go. Um, and that was achieved by uh, uh, adding uh, a water to organic glass and inserting um, that between. There were two pieces of organic glass, um, and they would add a water concoction between them, and then they were pulled apart and put back together. Um, and then, you know, that footage was kind of layered on top of it, like other footage, and that's what kind of created that effect uh, of it kind of being this pulsating mass. Um, now, uh, with the sewers, um, uh, there were miniature sewers built, which I believe we have a slide of as well. Um, there we go. Um, and. Uh, you can't see it in this sh this picture here, but they made little miniature H-men uh, out of celluloid, also. Um, and uh, now, getting into the melting person effects, we have uh, some early kind of body horror um, effects here. Uh, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like that shot? Um, I'll go back. Oh, oh, well, we, you just you just. Past it, whatever. I'll let Matt uh, fiddle around with it. Um, anyway, it's, like it's um, working really well. <laughs> those uh, those melting humans we go. were uh, go to the one that you just at. So yeah, they were um, done with these um, life-size inflatable human puppets that were literally deflated uh, very slowly to give the illusion of of melting. Um, uh, and that footage was uh, uh, run at a, it was shot at a high speed and then ran back at normal speed. Um, and then uh, if you want to uh, uh, recreate the foam, the blue foam uh, that comes out of the frogs and people when they melt, apparently all you need is uh, some food coloring, some baking soda, and some vinegar. And that'll give you that bubble effect. Um, so I mentioned uh, the Lucky Dragon subtext earlier. Uh, now that is a big part of the movie. Um, if I'll, I'll put it this way, if Godzilla is a personification of the atom bomb, the H-Men are a personification of the Lucky Dragon incident, uh, which Matt will be happy to tell you all about. <coughs> um, so the, the real incident with the Lucky Dragon was that during the Castle Bravo test, 
um, the U.S. government, they announced ahead of time they were going to make this test, but the problem was the yield was actually about two and a half times bigger than they expected. So when the ship waded into the water, went into the waters, they weren't expecting to get hit by the, the, the fallout. There was actually so much ash that it put layers on the, the nets and the people themselves. They had to scrape it off by hand. Um, that was, again, the Castle Bravo test that was on the Marshall Islands. And I actually have a friend who um, he used to run a, a diving business, and he actually went to the bottom of that test. And he said that even now, like 10 years ago, um, as recent as 10 years ago, there was no new life growing except for algae. Like there was, and, and, and even that was very bare minimum. So you can imagine this massive crater that was carved out from this blast. That's what they were dealing with. Um, there was something like nine tons of fish that got infected by it. One of the 23 members of the crew actually passed away. Um, the U.S. government initially denied anything had happened. And then uh, in September, so the incident happened in March, and then September, um, they finally admitted that they had done wrong, and they paid, um, the guy's name was Kubayama, they paid his widow only 2,500 bucks. That's what they paid her in restitution. Um, the, the kind of effects that the crew members experienced from what they referred to as Shino, uh, Shino High, which is death ash, um, bleeding gums, headaches, diarrhea, eye pain, extreme nausea, that's, that's the things that they were facing every day. The Japanese fish market actually crashed, basically. The, the value of the fish went way down. Um, 457 tons of fish had to be confiscated. So those are the elements, the backdrop for this movie that it references really clearly in the opening sequences of the film. Um, Should be mentioned that that incident is also one of the main inspirations for Godzilla, and the, uh, the 54 movie has a lot of callbacks to that. Um, and the outbreak of radiation, uh, people eating contaminated fish, um, just horrific incident. Yeah, the, the sailors actually, kind of like in Godzilla, there was that flash of light at the very beginning of the film. Well, that's what they saw. They heard the sound something like nine minutes, I think, later. And they didn't really know what was going on initially, and then they figured it out. By that time, it's kind of too late. And like I said, imagine having to scrape ash off your body, off the fish, off the nets, and then sail the other, other direction to safety. That's, I mean, incredibly traumatizing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, there's a lot of that. Um, if you watch the movie with that in mind, you, there's, I mean, this, that's what the movie's about in my, in my eyes. Uh, the, the ship in H-Man is actually Dragon God number two. It's, it's directly referencing um, the Lucky Dragon, the, the fishing vessel itself. That's, that's where that comes from. Um, so, uh, I think a lot of people here, probably anyone 30 and above, probably first saw this, uh, dubbed in the U.S. version, uh, which was released by Columbia in 1959. Um, and, yeah, I have some, just some notes on, uh, some of the cuts that were made. Um, Is that picture again, Bert? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, go down there to the posters. So if you have the VHS or anything like that, you're probably familiar with a lot of this imagery. Um, now, uh, the, this version is missing about eight minutes. Um, I think a lot of the cuts were probably tasteful. Um, you know, Americans were used to, you know, faster pacing, so, um, so some, it was trimmed up here and there. Um, some of the prominent differences um, the U.S. version opens with the same nuclear explosion, uh, but the Japanese cut goes right to footage of the Dragon God uh, boat. Um, 
the U.S. version, we just get uh, you know stills of the H-Man, you know, uh, uh, behind the opening credits, which I would imagine is probably because the the that Lucky Dragon imagery wasn't really as meaningful to an American audience. Um, a lot of the uh, nightclub scenes are trimmed a little bit. Um, there's no nudity, but uh, there's a couple scenes that um, you watch the dancers do a full number, uh, and it's pretty racy, even for uh, 1958. Um, so that was trimmed, uh, and um, some of the police procedural stuff is trimmed, probably for pacing, a lot of the questioning, um, and the police's uh, attempts to connect um, the H-Man killings to the Hanada gang. Um, now, we'll go back to that shot of our lovely dancer. Uh, this shot was, um, you can't see it in motion. It's too bad we don't have like a GIF or something. But yeah. that's, that's basically animation laid over the, the actress. And uh, it's really kind of a hokey effect, whereas, you know, it, they don't do the melting body horror stuff. It's, so that was uh, really, that was trimmed. I think there's a couple seconds left in the, in the US version. Um, uh, the dub featured a lot of familiar voices uh, from other Toho dubs. Um, I think uh, Paul Fries is probably the most prolific of the bunch, um, and he voiced several characters. Um, uh, another thing that it does is it kind of overexplains things and adds voiceover where um, you know it's not really needed. Uh, for instance, when Masaki dissolves, uh, the camera pans to the the clothes in the rain, in the Japanese version, you just hear the rain. And in the US version, you hear someone shout, he's gone, only his clothes are left. And you know, <laughs> stuff that, you know, you can clearly see. <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, a small amount of um, theaters in the States actually gave out little uh, H-Man sponges in the shape of a, a man that said, uh, dip him in water and watch out. Uh, but um, a lot of theaters didn't carry them because they were concerned about kids misusing them uh, in bathrooms and drinking fountains, and nobody needs that in their lives. <laughs> um, so uh, we, have, uh, we have some posters and some merch. Um, some not a lot of merchandise has uh, kind of been made, uh, but we, we have here um, a little um, uh, on the left, that's a little. Uh, uh, kit. Uh, I don't know who makes it. Uh, on the right, that's the packaging to the Iwakura um, figure. You know, they did their line of Toho Tokusatsu um, uh, little ornament-like figures. Uh, and you can see our, our frog friend is represented there. Um, there's a few more Iwakuras. And the, the top middle there is actually, um, uh, as far as I know, the only actual vinyl figure. Yeah, I don't know. That, yeah, that was made of the H-Man. I'm not sure the manufacturer. Matt's the toy guy. Yeah, I got, I, I'm and not sure of the manufacturer either. I've never even As you can it. see, he's the toy guy. Yeah, he, clearly. <laughs> um, we have some, some international posters here. This is Sweden. Um, I like that one. Uh, this is Germany. Uh, and there's a German Blu-ray coming out that uh, has a lot of extra stuff on it. Um, and that's the cover as well. Uh, we have two French posters here. And uh, here's Canada, where it was stamped with an adults-only rating. 
uh, too scary for kids, I guess. Um, and we got one more. Okay, this is Australia. Um, I kind of like that one. I like the really kind of sensationalist uh, posters myself. Um, now, Matt here has actually uh, found some stuff from the manga adaptation, which I never even knew yeah, of until we were doing this. So, so I want to mention uh, Kevin Derendorf, who's actually here from Azer Patrol, helped with this a little Woo! bit, pointed out some, some manga for us. And there's actually some uh, scans that we found uh, online. Um, the manga was uh, by Shigeru Fujita, and the name of the manga was Liquid Man and the Beauty, which is backwards from the Japanese title of the film. Which is Beauty and the Liquid Man. Correct. Yes. And the sequel is roughly translated as Liquid Man Continued, something along those lines. So here's a cover, and there's a second cover. Um, I'm going to kind of go through the slides. So we have, the obviously, the explosion. Um, this is kind of the beginning where the guy, the... It's kind of implied there's the car from the very beginning of the film, potentially the H-Man. And then here, that's kind of a recreation of the, um, the boat scene where they're, the guy's looking at the, uh, the, the transcript where they were writing their logs for the ship. And then here we have, um, I can't actually even see the slide that well, but there is, I think, the appearance of the H-Man. He, he actually overtakes somebody. Very similar thing here. This is kind of cool. This is in the sewer, of course, where they're looking for everything. And then here, um, we have our hostage situation. And as they're running, um, and that's kind of how, that's kind of the panels, or the, the scans that were available um, to us. You can actually get that off Mandarake. If you're not familiar with Mandarake, recommend you check it out. Um, you can basically find toys, manga, as long as you can essentially Google the name of the movie or the monster you're looking for, they have tons and tons of stuff. Um, it was. I think that was fairly affordable. I think it might have been like maybe 30, 40 bucks for both of them, so not bad at all. And that's pretty much it for the, the slides. We're going to open it up um, for some Q&A for a few minutes. And then we actually have a T-shirt giveaway. We have all kinds of different sizes. They're free. You just come up, tell us your size, and you get one. Once they're gone, they're gone. So um, go you first, sir. <coughs> uh, what's the, uh, so what was the third in the Mutant series? You mentioned the Human Vapor and the H. Okay, what, the third movie in the Mutant Trilogy. Secret of Telegion. Correct. Yeah. Did he hear you? Uh, yeah. Secret of the Telegion, yeah. uh, which um, Matt and the Human Vapor haven't had U.S. releases on DVD or anything, but they're around. Um, uh, they're not hard to find, that being said, if you know where to look. Okay. Gentlemen. Uh, this one wasn't, but geez, um, if you want to talk about mid to late 50s blob movies, there's The Blob, uh, there's Kaltiki, um, uh, X the Unknown from Hammer, uh, Quatermass 2, <laughs> also from Hammer, um, th there was a lot of that going on, so it could have been one of those. Um, what's interesting to me from an allegorical perspective is... Honda seems to be tackling the radiation theme in a, in a much more personal level in this movie. Do you think that maybe his direction was him trying to approach the subject in a way differently than he did in the original Gojira? That's an excellent question. Um, so essentially, um, 
the the approach to the radio spread of radiation seems a little bit more personal in this. And do you think that was intentional based on what he'd already done with with Gojira? Um, I, I I think so um, because. Well, first of all, uh, I mean, Toho were doing these mutant movies. They were doing outer space movies. You know, it, it, the, at the point of time this movie was made, there'd only been two Godzilla movies. Godzilla wasn't a franchise. Um, so Toho was really just doing different science fiction uh, things, just seeing what would stick. I mean, uh, you know, if this movie had broken box office records, maybe we could be at H-Fest right now. <laughs> but, but I definitely think that they... Um, yeah, I, I, to long answer, uh, short version is, yeah, I think that he definitely took advantage of, you know, the idea that these creatures were smaller and mutated people um, to really kind of uh, be a little bit more intimate with, with those themes. Excellent question. In the back. Yeah, absolutely. That, he had a record of doing both different kinds of movies separately and also did them together, which I think makes him unique among all directors to have done films law and horror movies and films law that were horror movies. For sure. The only director who ever did that. Yeah, um, you know, you, you start to see a little bit more noir stuff come into, like, you know, the giallo movement in Italy and stuff like that, but especially among Japanese filmmakers of the time, I mean, that's part of why I personally like these mutant movies so much is they they do combine genres like monster movies and film noir and ways that you know I really don't think anyone else was doing um, at the time outside of maybe a few outliers here and there uh, even then I think a lot of them were more you know serial killer kind of movies and not actual mo creature movies like these the back Um, that's a good question. I don't really know, um, but wha uh, aside from the Lucky Dragon incident, any direct influences um, uh, on this particular creature or this movie? Um, uh, I don't think they were aware of the Blob, just like I don't think the Blob was aware of it, um, just like I don't think Keltiki was. I think all these Blob movies were just kind of going on at the same time. Um, uh, I think the closest is probably going to be what the uh, the gentleman uh, before you um, was talking about with uh, film noir. I think that's that's probably the biggest um, uh, influence in terms of you know really what made them want to do a movie like this. All right, we got time for two more questions. Anybody else in the back? Uh, it was not AIP. Um, I don't remember. Yeah, a, a lot of the voice acting that you do hear in the dub uh, are people like Paul Fries and uh, voice actors that you do hear on the AIP dubs. Um, I, I don't think, 
I don't think AIP were really in the dub business at this particular yeah, point in time. You're looking at more of the 60s at that point. Yeah, but a lot of the stuff that you hear in this, voice actors and stuff like that, would be carried over into those later dubs. Last question, anybody? Yes, sir? Are they uh, serious about about giving it an adult rating? Is that the oh way? yeah, I mean you got to consider this is you know going 58. back 58. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, different this times, predates yeah. you know this this is before you get your you know Friday the Thirteenth and Grindhouse zombie movies. I mean. Yeah, I, I mean, for the, for the time, I think the, a lot of the, the atmospheric, spooky stuff on the boat and the, the melting person effects uh, were probably pretty scary. It seems tame now, but, I mean, you look back at the 30s Frankenstein, and that thing got cut to ribbons because it was too shocking, and it wasn't until 70s or the 80s or something that they started to put out versions with the restored footage, like him throwing the girl in the lake and stuff. So, you know, that's that's more just the time. I, I the think times, too really. the 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 dancing, the the exotic dancing and stuff's a bit racy, especially oh, yeah. for American audiences, like or Western audiences in mm -hmm. general. Yeah. So, all right. Um, so, we have um, one announcement that's we actually are promoting. Kevin, who's been a great help to our podcast, actually has a book out called Kaiju for Hipsters. Um, it's a, it's a guide to a ton of different movies. We'll have them on sale for 20 bucks. Highly recommend the book. They actually have it. Can you stand up for me real quick and just kind of show the book off? That is the book. We have a bunch of them if you're interested. Um, again, highly recommended. Uh, yeah, it's um, obscure and lesser known um, kaiju movies. He kind of goes through and gives you a rundown of uh, movies that, you know, if you've watched all the Godzilla and Gamera's a hundred times and you want, you know, some, some more, uh, that's the book to check out. So with that said, we also have shirts. Um, we basically have smalls up to 2X. I don't have a ton of them left. Um, so once they're gone, they're gone. You're welcome just to come up and I'll hand them out to you, okay? Thank you so much for coming. Clap for yourself. Give yourself a hand. I don't feel like I earned that hand, bird. <laughs>